press record anyway. It won't hurt my feelings. (laughs) But so that is um, what I want to let you know first off. I am the person, you should know about me, I'm the person that reads the last page in the book. I know I am that person because, because, um, not always, but sometimes I will because if it's a good enough book, I'll still want to read it anyway, right? I'll still want to finish the ending. I don't usually read the last page and then quit. It's actually what helps me keep going, if it's, especially if it's a really long one, like Anna Karenina or something like that. I, just, I have to know what happens. So um, if you haven't seen it already, you will know it. But what I want to tell you is that it's so beautiful in a horrible way, but it's beautiful because it is truly a work of art. Uh, Woody Allen, as we might all we might agree on this, we might not. He is a genius, and he has had so many years of filmmaking experience. I would call this a masterpiece, in, just in terms of it being a work of art. Okay, so um, let's pray, and then we'll start, we'll start getting into the film itself in a few minutes. So uh, let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for your story of salvation and for our placement in it. And we ask that through this time and through this film even, you would continue to show us just how it is that you see us and where we are um, in terms of your economy for eternity, uh, how you see us in light of your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would continue to show us that, um, make that truth of your love for us in Jesus uh, sink ever deeper into our hearts. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. Amen. Um, So again, first the spoiler alert and now the disclaimer, which is essentially that this is an R-rated film. And so it's R-rated and there's content in here that I would caution you about. You know, there is some distinct, you know, immoral things that happen in this film. Adultery, murder. Um, things that, that, you know, I'm not condoning by showing this film. So I just want to give you that heads up. Um, I'm not saying that's okay. Definitely not. Definitely not okay. We'll just start it off right off the bat with that. Um, so after the disclaimer, I just thought I'd give you a little bit of insight into, well, why would I even have a class based on film? And what is it about film that is important? Um, well, I would say, looking first at scripture, um, we see Jesus himself teaching in parables to his disciples, to the crowds. And there's a sense in which the truth, when it's told in a story form, affects us on a deeper level. Our guard is down. And I think this is true, uh, and I think this is one of the reasons probably why I always ask why. Well, we have scripture. Why, God, do we have scripture as the way of knowing you, as a means of revelation of who you are? And I think that God chooses to reveal himself. This is just Deborah Layton's theory. Chooses to reveal himself through scripture itself and through narrative in scripture because um, for some people, the truth, again, through story, through narrative, uh, allows um, that form of communication causes the truth to sink much more deeply into our hearts than it might through rhetoric, you know, through that. um, And I love the rhetoric of Paul's letters. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, and the Lord uses him so much. And I'm not denigrating them, but it's a different genre than story. 
you know, you, you see narrative in the Gospels. You see it in many of the Old Testament texts where we're looking at the life of the patriarchs and hear the stories about them. They're told through a story form. Uh-oh. I don't know what to do if that turns off. We'll get it back. Yeah, let's... Thank you. Yes! <laughs> Any mi minor success over technology is a major success, in my opinion. Um, so why, why narrative and why story? Well, again, because the, God uses it through scripture, and we see Jesus specifically taking that on and using parables to tell the truth of the gospel to people. Um, and this is also why when we preach or teach, we tell illustrations and stories. I can't tell you the number of times where I've preached, a, well, hopefully it was more than mediocre, but it's the kind of thing you just leave it up to God. You preach a sermon, and very often what people remember most is the story you told. People always remember, time after time, remember the illustration more than maybe what your number one theological point to convey was. Perhaps that's a flaw in my preaching, it probably is, but I sense that hearing people after a sermon there thinking, wasn't that a great story he told? Don't you remember that story? And the story sticks a little bit longer sometimes than a strict theological point. And I think if we were to look in scripture itself, we would find the perfect example of this. Um, and I think that this, this storytelling as a means of conveying truth and um, is especially seen in conviction of sin. And when you look at um, the perfect example of this, how, how is it that we are convicted of our own sin except that we're kind of led around um, instead of that direct confrontation? Direct confrontation works, but also it doesn't always work. And so sometimes we need a gentle leading to be able to see the truth about ourselves. And we see this, the perfect example of this is, of course, with King David and um, with the, the adultery and the murder that he's committed uh, with, because of Bathsheba, which, oddly enough, is very interesting that adultery and murder are also what we see in this film. I didn't even think of that before I got up here. But we see that when, when is it that he's convicted of his sin? It's when the prophet Nathan goes to him and tells him about what he's done, tells him this story about a man who came and um, a rich man came and took the only lamb of a poor man and, um, and then, and what must be done to that man? And David, you know, lambasts against that man and then realizes that he himself is in fact the man that has stolen the lamb away from the poor man. So that's one reason. Story and film is a type of storytelling helps us to see the truth more clearly than we might otherwise see it um, in a roundabout way sometimes. And then also I would just say as an artist or as anybody who's interested in the arts, film, I would say the statement that film is the culmination of centuries of various humanly devised art forms. So when you see the history of art, visual art, dramatic art throughout, um, throughout the centuries, what you'll see is that and I didn't discover this, I kind of, this is my theory that I arrived at when I actually started to make a few films, amateur films, of course, but um, that, that, film is that film is like the culmination of all of these art forms. When you think about theater, theater and its composite art forms, which include acting, directing, and writing, all of those go together to make theater what it is. Um, theater it also involves some aspect of visual um, art, 
because of the, the composite picture. When you sit in the back row, what you see is planned. It's determined and decided by the director. The lighting is designed. The costumes are designed. There's a visual aspect to theater. Um, but, um, and again, even theater itself is composite, right? Because it builds on that visual component. And then also, uh, as I mentioned very briefly about the writing, um, writing is a, an art form in and of itself. How to write an interesting plot story. What is the structure of a plot story that will make things um, work and move appropriately? How can um, something really um, capture people's interests, draw them in, pull them in, and then continue to captivate them through to its conclusion? And good writing is is worth noting. It's hard to find sometimes, especially in films. When you look at the mass amounts of films that are produced by Hollywood, they're not always well written. You know, some of them, those are probably the ones you don't, I always have a hierarchy of films. Which one do I want to see in the theater? Which one do I not want to see in the theater? Which one do I not even want to see on DVD? <laughs> which one am I pretending does not even exist? It, because there's that sense in which you can tell from the outset, this just might not be a good story that I want to hear. This just might not be a, a plot line that's worth following. So writing. Then also the visual art. Um, Two-dimensional visual art. Painting um, is the composite. In, in film, you have the composition of frames. The directors actually sit down, and it, it, it's like comic books, where each frame is very important and builds upon the last frame to tell the story. So there's that visual sense of the storytelling through the juxtaposition of um, actors, through what you might see in the whole frame. I, I kid you not, the cinematographer for this film poured oh, every frame is planned. And I didn't realize that until I started studying and making films a little bit. And that was what I was just in awe of. What an amazing art form that each frame, and that means each second, is planned and carried out and brought um, brought into life. Then there's that three-dimensional aspect um, of, of sculpture itself. It wasn't until I acted for films that I realized that acting for film is very different than acting for theater. Acting for film, just to make you a little more comfortable there, <laughs> acting for film is like live sculpture. The sculptures are the, the, sculpt, um, the actors are the models for the sculpture and they move. And acting for film requires a great degree of precision and intentionality and also um, that patience um, and the ability to really remember exactly where, not just exactly where you're standing, exactly where your arm was, exactly where everything was for um, each take. And so there's a sense in which actors themselves are like live models for a live sculpture. And, um, and cinematographers or directors of photography have to be able to get all of those little sculptures to move exactly the way they want them to move. Take after take after take. One last one, music. There's um, a sense in which we see this coming out more and more, but music is such an important part of filmmaking. Um, and the industry has certainly realized this with the, the tracks, the soundtracks that you get, you know, that people will buy. And um, then even you see it in the Academy Awards that the music is, is very important to how the story is told. It's very important to the emotions that, um, for conveying the correct emotions or the emotions that the director would want to portray. So all of this is made possible, this culmination of Western art forms is only made possible through the Enlightenment and through scientific discovery. 
you know, the scientific discovery that started to come about through the Enlightenment. Not that I'm endorsing some of its philosophy. We're looking just at the science that um, the ability to make photographs didn't occur until the 1820s, so we could have never had film before that. And then the ability to make moving pictures, which started out with about 10 photographs per second in the 1880s. When I think of the 1880s, I'm baffled that they could do 10 photographs a second. And maybe I have a low opinion of the 1880s. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I find it very impressive. Okay, so on to match point itself. Again, um, well, first of all, any questions about film, film and storytelling, film as an art form? Why film? Why can we watch film as Christians? You got me. We'll move on to Match Point. So Match Point, Woody Allen is one of the best comedians ever, right? I, I would, he is so dry and he's so um, smart in his wit that um, he's just lasted for, for decades in film. And yet this particular film is not a comedy. For those of you who've seen it, would you agree with me? Did you laugh at all when you saw it? I see some heads shaking. No, there's nothing funny about it. Um, I would in fact say that it's a tragedy. And um, if you were to look at, if you were to try to diagram what does a comedy look like, a plot line that's a comedy, a comedy will look like um, a big U-turn, a big U. I like to think of a parabola, you know, going up. That things get bad, you know, things start out good and then they get really, really bad and then they get to their worst point down at the lowest bottom part of the parabola and then they start to get better and then they're great again and life is great and that's the comedy. When you think about that with sitcoms in a half an hour, you know, there's some, some problem and it goes to the, oh, the conflict gets to its worst point and then it's quickly resolved all's better. That's, that's just like life, isn't it? <laughs> but that's one of the things about comedy is it gives us that escape to look at life in one sense. Um, Tragedy is in fact very different. Tragedy just starts out up high and then it just keeps tanking. It just goes down and down and down and down worse and worse. Things get worse and then things end on a point beyond at a point beyond imagining. Um, so I would say Match Point is a tragedy. And when we look at some of the clips and talk about the plot line, you can, you can tell me if you agree or not. Um, so the plot line could be basically described to this movie. Again, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you all about it. What would, you have to, what would you do to have the life you've always dreamt of living? I think that the trailer for this movie, if you haven't seen the movie but you saw the trailer, it makes it seem like it's all about this forbidden love, and it's not at all. It's about ambition and about conflicting obsessions. Um, and so you see the main character, Chris Nolan, he's Irish, he's an outsider to the upper middle class, even upper class British setting in which the whole, whole movie takes place in London. Um, he's definitely an outsider to, um, to this setting, and he is escaping his, his poor, impoverished upbringing or lower middle class upbringing in Ireland. And he had a chance to do that through his success in tennis. He was a great tennis player, and you see this, again, Woody Allen spares no um, time for his story. Woody Allen is such a great storyteller that you see you know, me telling you this, he never tells you this, you pick up all these details throughout the film. 
Um, anyway, so he has traveled the world because he was a professional tennis player, and he was very good at tennis. He even says a couple of times in there that he played with Agassi, um, but he never won. He, he, he won sometimes. You find out from, he didn't seem to think he won. He thought he was a B-team, B-string tennis player. But you see him when he meets up with an old friend who used to play tennis with him. The friend says, you weren't that bad. You actually won against Agassi, and you beat me most of the time. And so you see that his perception of how he did was worse than other people's perception. But his whole perception of himself has to do with success. He failed to be Agassi, and so he was unlucky in tennis. And he ascribes it to luck, to that chance ability, both in the chance moment, and it's epitomized in the chance moment in, um, in a tennis game. But he looks at that as, um, as being also described by chance, his own ability to play against Agassi or his lack of ability, that itself he ascribes to the, uh, the randomness within the universe, that he randomly did not receive the talent that Agassi had. And so, of course, he wasn't going to win. So there's this, um, we're going to see this moment um, in, this is, this is the very beginning of the film. The man who said I'd rather be lucky than good saw deeply into life. People are afraid to face how great a part of life is dependent on luck. It's scary to think so much is out of one's control. There are moments in a match when the ball hits the top of the net and for a split second it can either go forward or fall back. With a little luck it goes forward and you win. Or maybe it doesn't. And you lose. That's his philosophy, right? Luck. That way, and how beautifully Woody Allen shows it. That's one of the things I do love about this movie is the beauty the, with the opera playing in the background, the image of the ball right there on the net bouncing to one side or the other. Um, that just, he believes in luck. I'd rather be lucky than good. Um, what, let's, I'm sorry, I want to hear it again, because he talks about the man who said, did anyone catch that quote? Okay, can you quote it for me? I wrote it down somewhere, <laughs> but I don't have it. Let's, let's listen to it again. It's a very short clip, so. Oh, no, not that one. Wait. The man who said I'd rather be lucky than good saw deeply into life. People are afraid to face how great a part of life is dependent on luck. It's scary to think so much is out of one's control. There are moments in a match when the ball hits the top of the net, and for a split second it can either go forward or fall back. With a little luck it goes forward, and you win. Or maybe it doesn't, and you lose. It goes on to show him, um, he gets in at this exclusive club where he is a tennis instructor. So he has a stroke of luck there, right? Um, and his goal, you begin to see throughout the film, his goal is to lead the life he was never able to lead in a lower middle class upbringing. He idealizes 
this gentleman who has made, who is a made man, who has made his fortune through industry and can now enjoy all of the pleasures of the upper middle class, the art, the culture, opera, Dostoevsky. You see him reading Dostoevsky at one point so that he can actually talk with his family and engage with them on a level that they'll understand and where they'll respect him and think more highly of him. He um, listens to opera. He gives himself an education in opera so that he can learn more about it in order, again, to be able to talk with them. This is this scene, and he has been invited over to the home of this family. And it's the family that is um, the, pa the parents of one of his students. And here he meets someone. He's looking for the party. And he goes down to the basement, and he meets someone in the basement. So, who's my next victim? You? I haven't played table tennis in quite a while. That's Chris. Would you like to play for a thousand pounds a game? What did I walk into? <laughs> what did I walk into? Perfect, right? This is his first introduction to this, um, the lovely Nola. Nola is the fiancé of his student, his tennis student. And I love, again, how they bring the net back in there. You know, they're bringing, the tennis is all throughout the film. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. The themes, it is, it is, again, like I say, I'll reiterate, it's a work of art in, in um, the way that Woody Allen presents it. Um, so essentially, that very little short clip mm -hmm. describes exactly their relationship. Um, it, she says later on in this scene, you play a very aggressive game. And it's true. And then also her question, what have I gotten into? What has she gotten into? In fact, what she's gotten into is this relationship with this man who will pursue her at all costs, obsessively. He's obsessed with her. Um, and he's passionate, and they have a passionate affair, um, but I wouldn't call it love. Um, the sad thing is I wouldn't call it love. He's very happy even in the midst of the affair, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it love. Um, so essentially, he pursues her even while she's engaged to his student. The engagement breaks off, and Chris actually marries his student's sister, who he's been um, ingratiating himself to, and he's begun a relationship with this sister, even while he really is only interested in Nola. He has these two relationships going. Um, so here we'll see the four characters. This is once he's in this relationship with the sister of his student, then we'll see um, the four of them sitting down to dinner. So we'll see um, Nola and Tom, her fiance, and then Tom's sister, Chloe, and Chris. And Chloe and Chris have begun dating. And this will also give you a little bit of a sense into his philosophy of life. I'll have the caviar beans, please. Uh, roast chicken. Oh, boring. Yeah. Honestly, they have a great caviar beans. That's okay. No, do you like caviar? Some, some. <laughs> You've been brought up as a good boy to always order modestly. I'm very sorry. You're not the blaming. My goodness, was your father an oil rigger who specialized in etiquette? Uh, he was kind of austere. Chris's dad was a bit of a religious fanatic. Oh, Christ. After he lost both his legs, he found Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it just doesn't seem like a fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying about Hedley? Oh, Papa's advice is for some shooting. Oh, really? Mm. So, 
I better bring a different change of clothes. I don't think your mother appreciated what I brought last time. I think that was your swimsuit. She's just used to slightly more fabric. I'm sure if she knew you wanted to in a movie, she'd suddenly find it chic. True. Mm. Have you done many movies? It was a commercial, not a movie. But your eyes went straight to it, if you know what I mean. I don't think my career has really gone as planned. Oh, you just need a break. I think it's important to be lucky in anything. Well, I don't believe in luck. I believe in hard work. Mm. Oh, hard work is mandatory, but I think everybody's afraid to admit what a big part luck plays. I mean, it seems scientists are confirming more and more that all existence is here by blind chance. No purpose, no design. Well, I don't care. I love every minute of it. And I mean beautiful it. What was it the, uh, the Vicky used to say? Despair is the path of least resistance. <laughs> it was something odd, wasn't it? it was very I think that faith is the path of least resistance. Oh, God. Oh, God. God. Can we change the subject, please? No, I was talking about acting, which is much more interesting. No, I was just saying that I think I'm giving acting a second thought. just can't bear people in my hometown to think I failed. You get the sense, right, of um, Chris is inappropriate drawn to Nola. He's with Chloe, but all he can think about is Nola across the table. Um, you get a sense for um, that Nola and Chris are in the same class. They have a lot in common. She's also an outsider. She's American. His, um, her, her potential mother-in-law totally disapproves of her. Um, and then you see Tom and Chloe, you know, the caviar blinis, and they're going shooting. And there's this sense in which they live a life that the other two um, aspire to be a part of but might never join and that plays hugely into Chris's own like rationale and his reasoning for what he does why he pursues Chloe why he marries her even though he doesn't really love her um, and so essentially what happens from here Chris and Nola have an affair and it gets ugly it's beautiful he loves her passionately in his own way um, and yet he starts to realize that he can't have both of his worlds um, and so she um, actually she he's obsessive I would say and aggressive and she gets possessive she gets pregnant and she refuses to have an abortion and insists that if he really loved her he would um, break up with Chloe that age-old story his wife, Chloe, his wife. And um, eventually what Chris does is he starts to realize it's one or the other, one life or the other. In his worldview, there's no room for forgiveness. There's no option of telling his wife and seeing what will happen. Um, there's no room for that. It's either Chloe or Nola. And he starts to choose Chloe. He starts to continue to choose this life that it r would mean that he's arrived, that he's successful. He starts lying to Nola. Um, avoiding her. She gets mad at him and um, eventually he comes up with a plan to murder her. And it's horrible. It's horrible to watch. Um, so we won't watch that. Um, but he is actually, in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, you see the same plot play out. In Crimes and Misdemeanors, there's an affair, or there's an affair, it's less of a love affair and more of just a situation that um, the main character gets into and can't get out of and she's going to tell his wife and he has someone kill her <coughs> and that's his crime um, but here Chris does the deed himself and it's sobering and he is affected by it it's good directing and good acting he is affected by it <coughs> on some level you see him immediately what he does is he plans 
um, a robbery for the neighbor next door, and then he knows exactly what time Nola will be home. So he plans this fake robbery. He kills the neighbor. He comes out of the neighbor's, who's an elderly woman, comes out of her apartment, sees Nola in the hallway, and just shoots her with a shotgun, puts the shotgun in his tennis bag, gets in a taxi, and goes to the theater with his wife, giving himself a good alibi. And he has rifled through the elderly woman's jewelry. Um, so what he doesn't, again, this discussion of luck comes back into play because he doesn't realize that he dropped some of her jewelry, some of this, or he doesn't, no, no, he doesn't realize, excuse me, he doesn't realize that Chloe has been keeping a journal this whole time. And so when the police inspectors, they initially say it's a robbery and then they start to read his jur her journal and they call him in for questioning. He starts to get a little bit nervous. He takes the jewelry, jewelry that he stole from the older woman's apartment to make it look like a robbery, and he begins to dispose of it. And this is the scene that we see next. That's sort of, hang on, he's talking to the inspector. Again, the opera, beautiful. <laughs> That's the old lady's wedding ring. that stunning how he how he shows that I mean it is again it is a work of art though those images are repeated the bouncing the question here is is it good that it fell on this side of the that it didn't fall into the Thames or bad and the assumption when you're watching the movie is oh no or oh yes he's going to be caught and that's a good question to ask yourself in a movie like this do I want to am I rooting for him to get caught or am I rooting for him not to get caught? And that's a question that I won't ask you to say out loud because that actually displays more about yourself. But I'd encourage you to ask it of yourself. Do I want him to get caught or do I want him not to get caught? Um, it bounces back and we find out that in fact, we'll find out in just a minute, we're gonna look now um, at the final scene. Um, but just one minute, with that luck idea, the moral, the idea of moral luck is a part, and we can only surmise it's a part, but it's a part of Woody Allen's philosophy of life. We, you know, when you get, when you ask Woody Allen questions about what he actually believes and what his philosophy are, is you, you get jokes in return. So it's really hard to get a sense for what it is, except that if you look at his films, you can get a broader sense. You can look and say, we think that this is what he believes. One of the main recurring themes in his movies is the meaninglessness of life. You see it through so many of his main characters as they struggle with suffering, as they struggle with the impermanence of their lives and um, the prospect of their death. There's one character that, um, that can't go on, begins thinking about the meaninglessness of life um, because he has just found out that he had cancer 
And then he found out that he, um, that the cancer was removed from his body fully. And yet that's when his crisis begins. His crisis about this sense that our lives are precarious, that our lives can change in a moment. So that's a theme that you see all throughout Woody Allen's movies. Um, there's, um, you see it in, um, in so many of his films, and you see it here in the way that Chris approaches life, right? Faith is the path of least resistance. Life is meaningless, so you might as well go for what you want. You might as well strive to succeed no matter what the cost. Um, you might as well just go for it. And that's, that is, in fact, what he does. Um, oh, again, Woody Allen, uh, in asserting this meaninglessness of life, he then denounce any, he denounces anything that distracts from the truth, this perceived truth of his about the meaninglessness of, of life. He sees routines, passions, hobbies, art, anything that can... Um, capture our attention, he sees that simply, and this is Woody Allen, as a distraction from realizing the truth about the precariousness of life, and as he would then say, the meaninglessness of, of life. And I would, I think that's good on one level, and here's where, because once we, um, because life is indeed precarious, isn't it? Things can change in a moment, and we, um, we will fill our time and fill our days with things that allow us to um, hold off dealing with that truth, hold off dealing with um, the truth of our circumstances, the reality of pain within us, pain outside us, and even the sin that causes that pain in our, you know, our own sin. And so there's something good about that to say that the things that consume our time and energy are in fact distractions from asking the questions about life that we need to ask. But I'll, I will say the solution is different, and I think Woody Allen puts the solution into this film without even realizing it. So we'll see this last scene. Oops. He's working late, he hears noises. Can you see this all right? This is after he has committed the crime. Me. What about the next door neighbor? 
I had no involvement in this awful affair. Is there no problem about me having to die as an innocent bystander? The innocent are sometimes slain to make way for a grander scheme. You were collateral damage. So was your own child. Softly said. To never have been born may be the greatest boon of all. Prepare to pay the price, Chris. Your actions were clumsy, full of holes, almost like someone begging to be found out. It would be fitting if I were apprehended, unpunished. At least there would be some small sign of justice, some small measure of hope for the possibility of meaning. Chris Wilton killed them. That's the inspector. Some small hope for the possibility of meaning. He wants to be found out. This is just a little bit of a side trail, but there's a sense in which the law, um, in a theological sense, the law in scripture, that um, the sense it, that it, it is an answer to those atheists saying, is there order in the world? There's no order in the world. There is only chaos. There's only luck and chance, which essentially does come out of this view of Darwin, that all of it is just random chance, these random things happening for throughout centuries. Everything is random and happens to be, you know, random in such a way that we actually live, but it's random. And that's what he's espoused. But yet in that, the law brings a sense of order in a sense in which that randomness cannot be asserted in light of God's law. So then what about here? What about justice here? Is he caught? Is what you want to know. That seems like a prayer to me when he's saying that. First of all, in this scene, he's justifying himself to the two women he's killed. He's justifying his actions. You are collateral damage. And saying essentially to Nola, I could do it. Um, and essentially, I needed to do it. Um, that self-justifying is something that he will continue to do, I, I think, for the rest of his life. And there's that sense in which as you see him, did you believe that he believed himself when he was saying that? Shannon, you're shaking your head. I to I'm sorry I, for saying your name. Now it's on the tape. Um, I totally agree. It, I don't think, I don't believe him at all. You know, oh really? You think you did the right thing? And he's there's a tear coming out of his eye. He is trying to justify himself to the people that he's murdered, and he's not doing very well at it. I think that the rest of his life he will be plagued, you know, as, you know, in theory, by these women. And that essentially, too, one of the things is that the tragedy, the content of the tragedy, is that he has killed what might have been the love of his life, what might have been the only love that he would have ever known, certainly the woman that made him the happiest. Um, certainly the woman that he had the most in common with. And now he's trapped in this life um, that is foreign to him, uh, this life of luxury, and yet a life where there are demands on his, life, on his time and things that he doesn't understand. Um, so essentially, the question of judgment, is there judgment in this play? Do, is there justice, first of all? Is there justice in this film? And the answer is no. Because what happens, the inspector says, 
I had a dream, I had a dream. And some people think that the scene before it is the dream, and I totally disagree because I don't think he could have imagined it in that kind of specificity. I think actually this part where he realizes it is in conjunction with what Chloe says uh, about your actions were messy and you're going to be found out. Um, he figures it out. He figures out that Chris actually did it. But when he goes into work that day, the other detective says, well, actually, we found the old woman's wedding ring in the pocket of this drug dealer. He definitely did the crime. He had, a, he had her jewelry right on him. He was involved in selling drugs. He was shot today, so we can't even ask him. And yep, he did it. We're not going to bother this Chris Wilton because he didn't do it. So that moment where the ring is bouncing, the question is, where, does the, where is his luck falling? He, he ends up getting lucky this time. But I think he is unlucky in the sense that the tragedy has played out and he will now have to live the rest of his life with that judgment on him. He is being judged essentially throughout the course of his life. It will be a living hell as he has to continue to justify himself um, before his accusers. And so we'll just, um, any questions before we close in prayer? It's about time. Yes, Duncan. Woody Allen had a talk show in the 70s, and he had Billy Graham on. I don't know if you've seen that. No. It's really interesting because um, Woody Allen is pretty open atheist, and so he starts questioning Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, you know, almost making fun of him, but Billy Graham handled it so delicately and so graciously. And with Woody Allen, he almost got a sense that he was jealous of someone who had such strong convictions. Yeah. But at the very end, uh, they had this banner back and forth. And Billy Graham agreed to see one of Woody Allen's movies, and Woody Allen agreed to go to a revival. <laughs> and it's just that you can look it up on YouTube. It's a really great interview. I hope he went. But it becomes clear throughout his films that there's a distinct disdain for Christians. Um, you know, I think he continues to think that faith is the path of least resistance. There's a sense of scorn. I wish it weren't the case. He'd be a great one. We, we need him. We need him for our team. <laughs> Anybody else? Thank you, Duncan. Yeah. This is kind of a little bit off of that. Yeah. When I play tennis, you know, when the ball does do that, yeah. a lot of things that people say, they'll go, oh, you must be living right. And I always say, no, it's just an example of grace because I clearly did not deserve the ball to fall my way. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't earn that point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is that sense. Well, in this sense of judgment on, I said the widescreen because there's this sense in which in this film we're looking at the big picture of judgment. Judgment in the world. Is justice available in this, in our lives? And it is in some measure, but it's not perfect. And so one thing just to leave you with is that we look to the end of all time when Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, will come back and will judge all men and women. And he will judge us, yes, according to our deeds. But for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who himself is the judge, who was judged in our place, he took upon himself our punishment, our judgment, the, the, action, you know, the, the consequences of our sinful actions were laid on him. And so when we stand on that last day and, and justice is meted out, when we stand on that last day, we who believe in him will say, let his righteousness be for me. Look at me and see him. And 
and may it be so that each one of us has those things that um, we might justly receive condemnation for. And yet when we turn to God the Father in repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ, we find freedom and eternal life in him. So go in peace.